0: Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading followed by this week's message.
1: God speaks to us from Ecclesiastes chapter five and chapter six. If you see the poor oppressed in a district and justice and rights denied, do not be surprised at such things for one official is eyed by a higher one, and over them both are others, higher still. The increase from the land is taken by all. The king himself profits from the fields. Whoever loves money never has enough. Whoever loves wealth is never satisfied with their income. This too is meaningless. As goods increase, so do those who consume them. And what benefit are they to the owners except to feast their eyes on them? The sleep of a laborer is sweet, whether they eat little or much. But as for the rich, their abundance permits them no sleep. I have seen a grievous evil under the sun, wealth hoarded to the harm of its owners, or wealth lost through some misfortune, so that when they have children, there is nothing left for them to inherit. Everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. I have seen another evil under the sun, and it weighs heavily on mankind. God gives some people wealth, possessions, and honor, so that they lack nothing their heart's desire. But God does not grant them the ability to enjoy them, and strangers enjoy them instead. This is meaningless, a grievous evil. A man may have a hundred children and live many years, Yet no matter how long he lives, if he cannot enjoy his prosperity and does not receive proper burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. It comes without meaning. It departs in darkness, and in darkness its name is shrouded. Though it never saw the sun or knew anything, it has more rest than does that man. Even if he lives a thousand years, twice over, but lace, this is God's word.
0: Thanks be to God. So uh, John D. Rockefeller famously once was asked, how much money is enough? And he replied, just a little bit more. Uh, Jim Carrey, also famously, the, the actor, comedian, famously said, I think everybody should get rich and famous and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see it's not the answer. I mean, both of these men were and are the best at what they did and they were compensated well for doing it. They achieved success and wealth uh, beyond what most of us could comprehend, uh, and in many ways, they, come, they came to a place in life where they had possessed anything that they wanted. Yet even though they could swim around uh, like Scrooge McDuck in a pool of treasure, in the end, they were admittedly left longing for more. Now, if you've been with us, we've been in a series called The Longing. It's a, a look at the book of Ecclesiastes. and It's our opportunity uh, to consider and process the longings that we all possess, longings that exist as a result of living in a world unable to fulfill. It's been a chance to fix our eyes beyond that which is under the sun, that which is temporal, to see this transcendent reality, a transcendent reality that is what we long for ultimately, the thing that ultimately fulfills. And this week, we consider a longing that we all possess, a longing for treasure. Uh, what we're going to see in our passage is an insight into money and the pursuits of money and treasure, insights uh, that our culture does not possess and cannot possess. There's going to be insights that uh, reveal to us um, the issues that we have within our own uh, society and culture often focus so much on money and achieving uh, prosperity and treasure. And so what I want to do today, I want to take a look at what the teacher of Ecclesiastes wants to show us about treasure and the pursuit of treasure. And I want to do that by looking at several things that treasure is. Right, so treasure is deceptive, it's revealing, it's a tool, and It's eternal. Okay, so first, treasure is deceptive. Uh, look at all the ways that the teacher frames treasure and the pursuits of treasure. Let me just give you a quick kind of overview. And in verses 4 through 7, uh, which is not in our passage, um, but in that passage he speaks of how um, if we were to make a vow, this is just in summary, if we were to make a vow and we don't uphold to that vow, the teacher basically says God might take everything from us as a result of not keeping our vow. And so we ought to fear him. And then in verses 8 and 9, which is in our passage, he basically lays out the most comic economic conundrum of history, specifically, is that who has the right to take from you what you have rightly earned? Uh, And then the teacher, again, basically argues that we should not be surprised if the result of one's labor is ultimately lost, that there's always another authority or someone above you, you a king in this case, uh, who could take all the profits, extort all those profits from you. It's always possible. And then in verses 10 through 12, he argues that even if people are able to hold on to their wealth, they can never really enjoy it. They work so hard for it, but it's never enough. And as a result, there's just this increased anxiety an anxiety about keeping what has been attained or making more than what is currently attained. And then in verse 12, he says this, struck me, sweet is the sleep of a laborer, whether he eats little or much, but the full stomach of the rich will not let him sleep. In other words, you know who doesn't stress much about the uh, achieving great wealth is the working class, blue-collar workers, day laborers. Why? Because there's a simplicity of life. That though they have other issues, this is not one of them. Managing great wealth is not one of them. And then he finally, in verses 13 and 14, describes what I think we all know to be true. That no matter what we possess, it could ultimately be lost in misfortune. And so to put all that together, right, I'm giving a kind of overview of all of this. In sum, bottom line, with our riches, with our money, God might take it, corrupt officials might take it, or misfortune might take it. And in the end, because of the instability, the uncertainty, and the general uh, fragility of wealth, the the teacher concludes it's all hevel. It's all meaningless. What's the point? And here's the irony of treasure. Treasure, or money, is terribly deceptive with the comfort that it claims to provide. It's quite striking how little stability it gives us, all while making us think that it's providing us some form of stability. I mean, for most of us, we desire to be able to have enough to live and provide for the necessities of life, right? It's kind of baseline what we'd all want. But of course, that is rarely enough for most of us. And so what do we do? We want to work, we want to save, we want to invest. Maybe for some, you'll pursue education or pursue promotions so that you might succeed and attain more riches, more money. But here's what's interesting about often how we approach this. If we approach a promotion or we get a raise, usually what ends up happening is we just increase our lifestyle in proportion to the raise that we might have gotten. So that now the net sum of all of it is we're just as unstable as we were before, except now maybe we are in a nicer apartment or eating at nicer restaurants. But in the end, that anxiety is still there because we know it could all be taken at any moment. And then of course, there's, there's others who are like really crushing it. Like you are just killing it wherever you are in life. You're making a bunch of money. Um, maybe you are the Rockefellers and the Jim Carries of the world. You're kind of the best of the best, and you're achieving all the financial success that you could have possibly imagined. You have way more than is enough. But then, of course, we also know that even if we were to retain great riches, there is always a 2008 market crash, a 2020 pandemic right around the corner that you have no idea about. The tragedy of economic collapse or a pandemic upends everything and you lose everything. You know, for many of us, in 2008, 2009, here in New York, I mean, of course, there were story after story of investment bankers who lost millions and millions of dollars, who ended up taking their own lives as a result of it. I mean, why did that happen? Well, it's because one, their whole identity was wrapped up in their wealth, but two, they were deceived by the perceived security that treasure brought it's a security that is always fragile. It is always right on the verge of being taken from us. And this is the point that the teacher is making. Your treasure is never stable. It is never secure. It is never going to be enough. And even when it becomes enough, you could very well lose it all. So in the end, I guess the best bet is to just settle into a life of constant anxiety, whether or not you'll have enough. I mean, these are the reasons why. He says it's meaningless. All this, this pursuit of great wealth and treasure, it's all meaningless. But not only is it deceptive in trying to make us feel secure, but it's also quite revealing. Look at verse 15. It says that everyone comes naked from their mother's womb, and as everyone comes, so they depart. They take nothing from their toil that they can carry in their hands. Now, there's a couple of ways to understand that statement. First, it's, there's the kind of obvious perspective, which is to say, you and I are born with nothing, and when we die, we leave with nothing. Uh, you know, I see the famous saying that I think Denzel Washington gets credit for saying that there's, there's no U-Haul behind a hearse. Right? The idea that we, can't, we can spend our entire life accumulating stuff, accumulating treasure, and not a penny of it will do us any good in the long run, in the end, because we don't get to take any of it with us. But there's another way to understand this passage. See, when the Bible speaks of nakedness, often nakedness is something far more than just physical nakedness. Rather, nakedness in the Bible often is referring to a vulnerability. It's about being known. It's about being seen. It's not about bearing your body, but rather bearing your soul. You know, a baby yes, is physically naked, but a baby is also completely vulnerable. There, there are no secrets to hide when you're a baby. What you need to know about a baby is known. You know, in Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve had sinned and rebelled against God, it says that they were naked and that they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. And all the way back at the beginning of our story. That nakedness was not solely a shame of being physically naked, But rather, that shame was about being seen, that this brokenness that was now in them was being made bare to everyone. The fig leaves were not just covering a physical nakedness. The fig leaves were a desire to cover up their shame. You know, another famous story where this nakedness idea is drawn out is in uh, the book of Job. Uh, If you know the story of Job, Job was an incredibly wealthy, seemingly blessed, righteous man, Yet despite all of these blessings, uh, tragedy would befall him. His entire family would be killed. He loses all of his wealth. And in response to that nakedness, he says this. This is in chapter 1 of Job. He says, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Now, There's numerous things that we could say about that response. One, which I'll just say quickly, I'm always struck by that kind of posture when when tragedy befalls someone, to be able to say, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away, may he be praised. And I wonder how often we have that kind of response when tragedy strikes. But the second thing that's interesting about Job's response is that his first instinct, when he loses all of his treasure, is the same instinct of the teacher, which is to say that naked I have come from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart "'Vulnerable I have come, and vulnerable I will go.'" I mean, treasure, riches, money, reveals to us just how vulnerable we are because treasure is usually the best that we can achieve for stability, and yet it's so fragile, and we all know, whether you have a little bit of money or you've got a lot of money, we know that behind that treasure, we have nothing. We are vulnerable, and money or a desire for money is so often our fig leaves. It's used to cover up the emptiness and the vulnerability and the insecurities that we fear, feel. And hear me, you do not need to have money to experience money as a fig leaf. All right, so when people have money, it's a bit more obvious with them. Because they rest in that money, they, uh, b- they are behind that money trying to cover up their in, uh, inadequacies and their failures and their fear of not being accepted. But for those without money, the lack of money often makes people feel the same things. Inadequacy, failure, and being accepted. Treasure, or the lack thereof, is an incredibly revealing thing, showing us some of our deepest fears. You know what's interesting, too, about money is that money and treasure, it can also reveal some of the worst parts of ourselves. You know, money has a way of making us the worst version of ourselves. Uh, in 1 Timothy 6, a chapter that has, uh, has a lot to say about money and actually houses one of the most misquoted verses of the Bible, in uh, verses 7 through 10, says, let me just read this for you. The Apostle Paul says, for we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we, have found, if we have food and clothing, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap and into many foolish and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evils. Just to note that there, it's the root of all kinds, of many kinds of evils. Now, what is he saying there in that passage? Well, there's several things that he's getting at. But one of the things that he's getting at is, listen, money, once you attain money, money will make you kind of the worst version of yourself. You know, if you're an angry person, if you get a lot of money, you're going to get more opportunities to be angry. If you're a person who loves power, money is going to make you more, a more ruthless person in the pursuit of that power. If lust or sexual immorality is at the core of your sin issue money will give you new levels of access and new forms of lust and sexual immorality. Money will make it easier for you to lie and cheat and steal and on top of that it's reminding you of your greatest fears. It reveals all of this in us. And so again all together this is why treasure is meaningless. It does nothing but give us this false sense of security. And so I think the question then leaves us with this. How are we supposed to approach money? What are, we, what are we supposed to be thinking as we consider what money is and how we should be using it? And the answer to that question is simple. It's complex, but it's also simple. Is that money ought to then be viewed as a tool. Let me explain to you what I mean. Uh, the Bible is not actually negative about money or making money. Uh, what you're going to see time and time again is that the Bible actually speaks negatively about our relationship to money, not necessarily money itself. And we make this mistake all the time about the Bible's teaching on various vices. You know, the, the Bible doesn't actually speak negatively right, about things like sex, but it speaks negatively about, how our, destruct, about our destructive use of sex. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak negatively about things like alcohol, but speaks negatively about the destructive use of of alcohol. The Bible doesn't speak negatively about money, but rather speaks negatively about our destructive relationship with money. You know, when, uh, in Matthew 19, when Jesus says that it's harder for a rich, the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven and that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God, he's coming off of a conversation with a rich young ruler, a man who had put all of his hopes and trusts in his possessions. And Jesus, in that moment, isn't, con- is, isn't condemning money, but he's condemning the idolatry of money, the money that had become an obsession for this rich young ruler. It's the relationship that Jesus is condemning, not the money itself. The Apostle Paul, in, again in 1 Timothy 6, which we just, we just looked at, he says this, that there are those who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain. Now, there's a few things that I want to say about that quickly. First, let me just say that there are those who would assume that if one is just good enough, righteous enough, if we just pray enough, if we have enough faith, that God's going to pour out blessings, and those blessings are going to be financial blessings. But Paul's words here are telling us that this is a robbery of truth. The belief that if we're just good enough before the Lord, if we have enough faith that God will give us financial blessings, that it's a robbery of truth to believe that. For some, God might bless us with finances. It's true. But he might not answer our our prayers in those kinds of ways. Instead, he might not bless us with financial blessings. But one thing that I have uh, been struck by, one of the reasons why we pray the Lord's Prayer every single week is some of us will spend a lifetime praying the Lord's Prayer pretty regularly and literally that, Lord, give me daily bread. And then tomorrow, I might have to pray that same prayer again, trusting that day's portion. That's a sermon for another day. But just know that God does not promise us that we will all experience financial prosperity, but rather that we ought to trust him. And here's where Paul uh, continues on. Paul says that we have, there are those who have been robbed of the truth and who think that godliness is a means to financial gain, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Contentment. That godliness with contentment is great gain. What does that mean? Again, there's probably much that could be said, but there is a satisfaction. There is a rest that comes when one experiences contentment with God's provision. And that's not to say that we shouldn't work hard and we shouldn't desire to make money or experience riches, but it is to say that whatever it is that God provides, we ought to find contentment in what he has given. Contentment is the antidote to the deception of treasure and the shame that treasure might reveal. Why? Because we are no longer trusting the fragile treasure of security, or the, the, tra- the fragile security of the treasure, but rather we're trusting in a faithful God and his provision. And contentment proves the way in which we're trusting him. And you know what the upshot of that whole posture is? Here's, here's the point. Is treasure then, when we find contentment in what God gives, treasure then becomes a tool. It no longer becomes an identity. Contentment allows us to see what God has given us now as a tool to be used for his purposes now. And that might look different for everyone, but it's a reminder that right now, the Lord desires to use me, and he desires to use whatever resources I have for his glory. You know, in the future, maybe some, you're going to attain a lot more wealth and treasure. But guess what? The posture doesn't change. It stays the same. Because all that then means is now God has given more tools for you to utilize for his glory. And for others, I also recognize there might come a time when you lose the treasures that you have. But you know what? Even in those moments, the posture still remains. Whatever it is that I do have, God for that season has given me those resources for his purposes. In the end, It's this posture of contentment that allows us to see money not as an identity, not as a fig leaf, but as a tool that the Lord is going to use for his purposes. But here's the last thing that I want to say about this. If you're going to trust that God's provision is good, that God desires to use you, whatever your means might be, it also means that you're going to have to have a certain level of trust. That the Lord is good, and he knows what he's doing, and that he's going to provide what you need. Which comes, I think, finally to this final point of that treasure is also eternal. You know, when you consider the ways that the New Testament in particular speaks of, of treasure, often we see this word inheritance come up throughout the New Testament. You see it in Ephesians 1, Colossians 2, Hebrews 9, and many other places. Now, what is an inheritance? Consider just what we know, by definition, what an inheritance is. An inheritance is a treasure that is not achieved or attained through our action, but rather it's given as a gift from one who has died. I mean, that's what we know an inheritance to be. One who, is, uh, one who in their death gave you a great treasure that was not yours, but that now is fully yours because they have gifted it to you. And there's a kind of inheritance, a treasure that is given to us and it's one that shapes everything that i've said it shapes our understanding of everything that i've said in 1st peter 1 peter describes the quality of this inheritance like this he says it's an inheritance that is imperishable undefiled unfading kept in heaven for you who by god's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time in other words it's an inheritance it's a treasure that is unlike any treasure that you could possibly possess here. It's a treasure that is eternal, that will not fade away, that cannot be taken away. And that treasure is not like the ones that we, of course, experience now. Treasure now is fragile and can be taken at any moment. Rather, it's a treasure of a restored creation that's free from the brokenness of this current world. It's a treasure that is given to us, a treasure that's free of decay, free of the shame that so often treasure can bring. And it's an inheritance that's given to you not through your own accomplishments, but it's given to you through the work of Jesus. I mean, consider Jesus and this great treasure. I mean, Jesus, the one who left all heavenly splendor to come and step into our poverty. And on the cross, defeats the forces of darkness, of sin, and death, forces, forces that are the root cause of this world's decay, and who in his resurrection proves his power over these forces, and as a result holds the authority to give the inheritance of eternal treasure to those who trust in him. And this is why we can trust God's goodness in all seasons of life, We can't trust God ultimately without looking at what he's accomplished through his son, Jesus. This is why we can see our resources as simply a tool given to us by God for his purposes. Now, it's because none of those resources define us. None of those treasures satisfies. Only Christ satisfies. Only Christ gives us a treasure that truly lasts, that treasure being himself. And when that truth sinks in deeply— There is not a treasure on this planet that can deceive us. There's not a treasure on this planet that can consume us. There's not a treasure on this planet that we would trust in more than we trust in the treasure that Jesus gives. It liberates us and allows us to see everything as a gift from God to use for His purposes all while resting and trusting and hoping in Him. Your longing for earthly treasure exists because you long for an eternal treasure. that's why it's there. And so I pray that our longing and our desire to grow in treasure on this earth would be a reminder of that eternal treasure so that now whatever the Lord gives us now, we recognize as simply being for his glory, for his purposes. And may that free us from whatever binds us uh, to earthly treasures, fragile as they may be, Will the Spirit of God break those from us that we might trust and hope and completely in this eternal treasure to come? Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for, uh, for who you are. God, a God who bestows upon your children great riches and treasure. And God, those are not riches and treasure like we often conceive of them. It's an eternal treasure. It's the hope of a a coming day when we will be completely free from the decay of this world, completely free from the shame that we often feel. And so, God, I pray that that longing that we have within us, that longing that we have for treasure, would be that reminder of a treasure that is to come. And I pray that as we fix our eyes on Jesus and what he's done to make that heavenly treasure available, that it would shape the way that we view this world and the resources that we have, would you help us all by your Spirit to not be deceived by the treasures of this world, but to see what we have is simply a tool that is used for your purposes. God, would you accomplish this in us? We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. For more information on our church, and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.